and then the cats are fine. So everything is okay. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. In today's episode, we talk to Tiffany Yates-Martin, the author of a new book called Intuitive Editing, A Creative and Practical Guide to Revising Your Writing. This book, which we got to preview before the interview, gives a comprehensive and accessible guide for writers on how to edit their own work. Tiffany started in the publishing industry more than 25 years ago as a copy editor for a large publishing company and has spent the last 12 years as a developmental editor. She works both directly with authors and through major publishing houses, and she also works both with best-selling authors and those who independently publish or are just starting out. She's also led editing and writing workshops for many writers groups and organizations and contributes to various writing sites and publications. Tiffany also writes fiction under her pen name, Phoebe Fox, and the most recent of her five novels is A Little Bit of Grace, released in August 2020. You can find her on her website, Fox Print Editorial, which is foxprinteditorial.com, or under her own name on Medium, and under Fox Print Editorial on both Twitter and Facebook. We'll have links to those in the show notes and also in the podcast description. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Here you go. Thanks so much for joining us, Tiffany. Um, I guess to kick off, could you just tell us about your journey to being an editor and a bit about your kind of professional development? What brought you here? Why did you decide to start that career? I sort of backed into it, I always joke, because I was an actor at the time. That's all I ever thought I was going to do from the time I was little. And um, moved to New York and was working there and realized I didn't want to be a waiter forever, (laughs) like every other (laughs) actor in New York. So I was trying to find something that I could do that wasn't waiting tables that would also give me flexibility because I was doing like a lot of regional theater. And I was, this was I don't even want to say when, it was a long time ago, to the point where $25 was a fortune to me. I was living in a women's residence in New York where I had a shared bathroom and they gave me two meals a day. And I had like money for one beer a week. And I found this ad in the New York Times that said, get paid for reading books. Send us $25 and we'll tell you how. And I'm thinking, I know this is a scam, but I thought... Um, I majored in English Lit, which is funny because looking back, I realize how I've been kind of laying the groundwork for this career all my life. I just uh, didn't realize it because I was seduced by the spotlight. So um, got the pamphlet and it turned out it was really helpful on teaching you how to become a proofreader or a copy editor. So I, I created a resume. I took the tests from publishers and I started working with a lot of the, at the time, big six in New York City as a copy editor. And the work just, you know, went where I went. I had to go get it because this was before the internet. So I would go pick up the giant manuscripts and um, correct them and then bring them back two weeks later. And then I transitioned about 12 years ago into doing developmental editing. And that's what I'm doing now. I work with publishers, but I also work directly with authors. Okay. Uh, That's the thumbnail version. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found out after like two years of doing the copy editing, I realized this is really more enjoyable than the acting. <laughs> and kind of um, drifted into that. Yeah, I can, I can imagine how that it's satisfying to kind of help people develop their ideas. And um, yeah. Well, I love that now, but what I was doing then was really, it was technical, you know, it was, is the comma where it should be? And yeah. is this spelled correctly? And yet I loved that. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, I'm OCD enough that that was really um, rewarding. Plus I was getting paid, y'all, I was getting paid to read books. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. The scam in the ad was actually true. So It was actually true. <laughs> $25 very well spent. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. Um, so you have a new book uh, called Intuitive Editing. Uh, and this book is really, I think, if we can plug it for a minute. Um, I thought oh, it was you a- must. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the way that it's written and all of the comparable, you know, the books that it's, books and stories that it's um, referring to are uh, really contemporary. It has a really contemporary feel and also feels like it's um, a really good uh, kind of overview of the editing process, but it's not shallow, right? So it does get you to ask all the kind of questions that would help you to look at your own work. Um, and so I think it's really uh, useful. If you could just talk through, like, what is your thesis? What do you, um, why is this book useful for writers? Um, and what what did do they get out of it? Um, first, thank you. This book was something that I have wanted to do for so many years, and it really is like a career passion, and it meant a lot to me to get it out. So it's just to hear that it's helpful is so rewarding. Um, but when you're writing a craft, like I'm looking at all of our bookshelves on the call, and we all have these stacks of craft books, right? Because we love this stuff, and I do too. And so I think I was afraid to write it for a long time because I thought, what do I have to add? I need to add something that's new. If I'm going to write something, I can't just, you know, uh, recycle things that I have learned over the years from other craft books. So I started really giving thought to how I work with authors as an editor. And that was one thing I wasn't really seeing a lot of in craft books. And the, the other thing that I kind of had in my mind that was sort of the guiding principle of the whole thing was that I, I love craft technique and theory but i also think it can be um handcuffs almost like if we lash ourselves to it too strongly i think it starts to constrict our creativity if you're i I always liken it to like taking an external structure and trying to shove it on top of your work and the way i like to work with authors instead is kind of work from the inside out figure out what the story is that you're telling and then let's see how much of that is on the page and how to get whatever isn't on the page onto the page so that it matches the vision you had in your head. Because as much as I think all these like, I'm putting this in air quotes because I always do, rules for writing can be really helpful when you're learning it. I think it shuts us down creatively to try to shove our story into that, into some kind of, you know, save the cat or, you know, the W or the hero's journey, all that stuff's really valuable, but tell the story you're telling. And at its core, what is story? It's characters we care about. And that doesn't mean we have to like them who care profoundly about something that is very important to them that they struggle to achieve and are changed by the journey of doing so. That's it. That's all story is. So within that, if you're hitting all those notes, there are literally millions of ways you can do it. And if all that craft stuff is helpful, great. 
but I don't know. I always think learn it and forget it. And then let's see what you've got on the page from that purely creative place of writing it. And let's figure out how to make whatever you envisioned when you set out to do that, the, the impression that you're giving readers. And part of that is up to the reader too, right? Like there's only so much that you can do as the author because it's a collaborative art and the reader is going to bring to it whatever they are. That's what I love about um, books as opposed to like movies, which are a little bit more passive. We take them in with books. We're a part of it as the reader. And so you're going to give the reader your vision, but then we're going to fill in the rest of that and figure out what the story means to us. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's a really good point. And I'm thinking through um, some other shows that I think do some of the story things really well. But like for me, what really works on TV, for example, is when you're basically manipulated by the story so well that you want something that you would never normally want, right? Like in The Sopranos, you really want them to, you're like, yeah, you definitely have to kill that guy, you know? And <laughs> yeah, or like <laughs> Jane like the Virgin, right? You're yeah. like, whoever Jane is in love with at the time, you're like, yes, that is the guy for you. That's and the one. You don't, right. you don't care, like, so... Yeah. And it's just some degree you do that in story in books as well, but I think less forcefully, like you're less a kind of puppet of the maker and more, yeah, co-creating. I really Well, like I that. love that you said manipulate because it is it's like benevolent manipulation. Yeah. I always say you lead the horse to water, but you're not gonna shove his head in and make him drink. We're just leading the horse to water and then I guess the reader is the horse in this analogy. <laughs> and they're gonna drink or not drink or, you know, whatever they're gonna do. But you you give them what you think you want them to know, and then they're going to bring their own thing to it. Yeah, yeah. But you also, a lot of times, what I think makes editing hard is that as the author, you know it so well in your head, you're filling it all in as you read it. And it's not always easy to know what you do have on the page. Like, what is the reader taking from it? You think you may have expressed something that we're not seeing. And so one of the things I, um, I structured the book in like two different, approaches and every chapter, which is generally one aspect of story craft, like character or plot or stakes, every chapter has how to find it, which is basically, is it on the page? And if it's not, how to fix it, how to put your vision on the page. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is it's not, it's not as prescriptive as a lot of other craft books. It doesn't tell you that at 10%, this is what needs to happen. And at 30% through the book, this is what needs to happen. And you need to have this and this and this and this. You just say like, figure out what you're trying, what your, your experience, what is the experience that you as a writer are trying to con convey? And then these are the questions to ask yourself to see if you've done it. And um, yeah, if you've done it as effectively as you can, that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean doing it and again, air quotes, right. <laughs> because I don't know that there is a right. Right is if it affects a reader. Right is yeah. if a reader likes your story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And not every reader will. I mean, you can write the most technically perfect story on earth and, you know, somebody's going to hate it. <laughs> read, get on Amazon and read reviews for some of the most beloved books in the canon and you'll, you can prove that to yourself. So, you, so why, why do that? Why not just write the story of your heart and do it as effectively as you can? Yeah. yeah. So for our listeners, what are some of your favorite, like your absolute favorite little tricks or tips for figuring out what that is in the first place? Like what is the story you're trying to tell? Mm, that's um, a good question. So. Uh, the first thing actually is that, like, what is the story you're trying to tell? A lot of times. So when I, 
um, when I get an author's manuscript, the first thing I do is just read it like a novel. I don't make notes. I don't think too hard about it. I just need to sort of bury my head in it and let it wash over me so I can orient myself to the world. And then before I start doing the really fine tuning work, I, I kind of ask myself big picture questions to make sure everything's in place. And the biggest one for me is what is the story question? And surprisingly, not unoften <laughs> to use pathetic grammar, the story question is not clear. And all that is, is why are we reading? You know, what made, uh, what makes the reader turn the page? What question are we trying to have answered? So it may be something in like Hunger Games, uh, will Katniss survive and get back to her family? Or Star Wars, will the rebels defeat the empire? Whatever that big question is, gone girl, you know, did Nick do it is the first story question. Um, and a lot of times the question is, what's going to happen or how is this going to happen? One of the ones I like to cite is Little Fires Everywhere, Celesting, which starts by telling us exactly what happened. We know that the fires were set and the question of the story is why? Like, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Same with Big Little Lies. So define first what your overall big picture umbrella story question is, because that's the thing that's going to propel us through it. Um, and if you're not sure what it is, one of the things I always um, suggest that readers ask themselves is what made you want to write the story? A lot of times that's the soul of it. And then I'm a character editor, which means I think character is the foundation of every story we read. So that's the next thing I'll look at. Like, do I feel like these are real people? Um, am I compelled? Sorry, you can probably hear my dog barking. <laughs> am I compelled by them? Did I, did I know what they wanted? That's huge. Like if your characters, you can, create the most beautifully drawn characters, but if they're not passionately motivated for or against something, we don't know what to root for. And it's hard to engage in that case. And then do I see them, you know, does, is what happens to them in the story a direct function of those things? Who this person is, what this person wants. Is the plot, basically, the action of the story, showing me how they are struggling to achieve that thing does it have a satisfying ending? Do I feel all that the all the threads are tied off? So I'm just asking myself these big picture questions. And then when I go in on the second read, that's when I go in for the little, uh, it's not little stuff, it's major stuff. It's like suspense and tension and you know, showing and telling and point of view and how vividly have you gotten it on the page and does the story have voice and does it sustain its momentum all the way through? That's the stuff you get into after you make sure the foundation is laid. But um, one of the metaphors I always use is like a house. You wouldn't start to put up the drywall before you make sure that the foundation is really set and that you've got your studs and the framework is in place. So you'd build it. You'd, at least I check it. I mean, however you write it is how you write it. But when I'm going through and seeing sort of assessing what's on the page, I start with that foundational stuff and then the structure, and then I kind of start looking at the drywall. And then the last thing I look at is the, you know, the HGTV staging, as I say in the book, which is like, you know, line editing and um, your voice and, and fine tuning the prose. Yeah. The tile colors or something, you the know. tile <laughs> colors, which is the fun stuff. And we all want to get to that first, right? Like one yeah. of the things I see authors do when they start to edit is they launch right in on the line editing stuff and they get 
a little bit caught up in, have I said this the right way? Is this the most elegant, you know, phrasing? Is there a, is there a more, I don't know, eloquent way I could say this? Um, and they start kind of line editing, copy editing, and that's the last thing to do. No more than you would, you know, put out the bowl of green apples <laughs> when you're still putting in the drywall or hang the curtains before the windows are in. Yeah, yeah. No, I think because you don't, I mean, so I'm rewriting right now because um, uh, because I'm sort of revising, but it's not a revision. It is like literally I'm rewriting this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I'm pretty much, but I, but I think, I mean, to validate, validate your approach, uh, I didn't really know who one of my characters was. And so, mm. well, I have two main characters. And so 50% of the book uh, just like started off on the wrong premise or not necessarily wrong. Like sometimes you have to write a whole book to figure out where you're going, I guess. Um, some people maybe yeah. write more efficiently, but anyway. Are you a plotter or are you a pantser? So I think my problem is I don't dig enough into uh, character. So I don't think that falls necessarily into either of those. Like I can tell you what happens in this book or some various versions of what happens, which is pretty consistent. Like the plot is consistent, but like how mm -hmm. your characters move through that plot is not, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so to your point about character, like I, mean, I don't think I could necessarily know who this person was until I got because it's sort of alternating points of view until I saw how he was going to play off against the other main character. And so anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I've already wasted that effort or no, I don't think it's wasted, but I'm like justifying that it's not wasted right now. I don't I think that's wasted. I mean, honestly, that's how I write. Um, I also write fiction and that's how I write as a writer too, because like you, I love that you said you kind of find it as you're living the story with them, which is kind of how we get to know people, right? You don't just know them right off the bat. You have to get to know them and see how they act in certain situations and how they react and, um, you know, learn. I learn a little bit as I'm writing about what a character's background is because I know there are people who do this and bully for you. I am a big fan of every, whatever your technique is, if that works for you, do it. But the people who will create these like massively ornate character studies and plot breakdowns and all of that before they start, I am in awe and um, slightly intimidated by those people because I, I, could know, I could never do that before I start walking in their shoes. And I have to write it to walk in their shoes. So that usually means as a writer, like I'm not the poster child for how to write because I, I probably have at least for every book I write, there's probably at least 30 or 40,000 discarded words, maybe more. But I like you, Olivia, I don't think that's wasted because that's how I'm finding it. Yeah. And my second character, like I found him or like I found him halfway through the book. So the first half of his story is kind of like I'm reading it now I'm like uh what is this I don't even know but uh, <laughs> at least halfway through like suddenly he shows up and he's like a person and I think I can work with basically what I have there whereas the first half is definitely going to need to like go back and forth a little bit but more. that's why editing is my favorite part because I feel like writing is where you are sort of at least for me and for a lot of writers I think you are feeling it out you're um Brenda Uland is a, a woman who writes on creativity I mean, a literally a hundred years ago she lived, but she has this beautiful book called If You Want to Write. And one of the things she talks about with create, it's about the creative impulse. And she says, when you're writing, don't judge, don't try to put anything on it, vomit it up on the page. And I absolutely love that. So to me, the writing process really shouldn't 
be caught up in the, you know, editor brain is that judging, assessing, critical brain. And it's essential when it's essential. But if you're doing that while you're writing, I think it shuts you down. It's like having someone over your shoulder while you're writing, judging every sentence, which we do to ourselves when we're writing, right? So free yourself of that. Know that when you get to editing, that's when you get to do all that. And to me, that's where the real magic happens. You vomit it up in the drafting stage, and then you get to go in and dig into the gold mine and get all of the gold out. Um, I just want some free advice. So um, (laughs) I no, I'm like, so in your, what, one of the things is radical and I really liked about your book is this idea that you go in and you look at the foundation If the foundation is cracked. You like stop and re-pour the foundation. You don't go all the way through the line editing process. Right. Um, To use the analogy that we've already kind of settled on. Um, So in those 30 to 40,000 words that you discard, is that where you sort of throw them out? So you stop and you're like, okay, wait, this character doesn't work. And then what you rewrite, like, that's what I'm doing right now. I just want you to tell me it's fine, but (laughs) it's fine. If it works for you is the answer. Like, I think everybody wants to, you know, one of the reasons there's all these books and online courses and everything is everybody wants the magic formula. And I don't think there is one. I think you have to find what it is for yourself. So if that's what works for you, for me, Sometimes it happens while I'm writing. More often it happens, like I'll vomit up my draft. And then like you, I'll go back and I'll go, what even is happening here? Who even are these people? I have no idea. Um, My last book that just came out, I rewrote. I mean, rewrote. I don't mean revised. I rewrote everything but one chapter because it just wasn't, it just wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't good. And, but I had to find it. I didn't know who these people were until I did that. That's really inefficient. This, let, we're talking about like writing craft and I'm telling everybody how really inefficient my way is. So um, editing can be much more efficient. <laughs> but to me, I, that's kind of why my writing is messy maybe because to me, I think editing, you know, there's that cliche, writing is rewriting and it really is. I think you get your vision out as best you can and then... And I always liken it to like a sculptor, you rough out the shape from the marble, but then the real work of it, the real art of it is when you go through painstakingly and it's hard, right? It's, it's tedious, intense, hard work sometimes, but it's also incredibly rewarding because that's when you go from, you know, chunk of marble that kind of looks like a human to the David. Yeah. yeah, but you can't just rough out the marble and have the David. It takes yeah. the work. It takes all well, the fine tuning. You yeah. also have to create the marble in the first place, which I think <laughs> <Yeah>. is <laughs> where we, you know, it's it's it gets frustrating. But um, you know, I'm another person who, to me, the 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 pre writing is writing the first draft. You know, and I think there are people. You know, I think the people who do spend a lot of time with the character worksheets and the notes and the outlining and the, dev- I mean, they end up with, you know, 30,000 word outlines. So true. It's, I don't know if I would say that it's less efficient um, to just say, okay, well, I'm going to sit down and write a draft. Now I know a basic, like, here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end, or maybe I just know the beginning right. and um, I'm just going to get there. It, it may take a little bit longer, but I think as far as putting in you're just putting it in in a different way, right? You're just thinking it differently. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, You know, when I was an actor, um, you rehearse. 
you don't just put on a play. You spend, I mean, we would spend more time rehearsing often than the run of the play. Mm-hmm. You spend weeks and weeks and weeks working on it and honing it. And you don't think that that's wasted effort. It is the process. And that's how I feel about, for me anyway, that's how I feel about that kind of writing. It is the process to do that, as you said. One of the things that you um, talk about in the book is the, you know, the getting the specifics right and, mm. you know, vivid. And, and that's that's what propels the story is it's not necessarily just like, the you know airplane coming in or the kidnapping or the the plot stuff it's 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 how that that is conveyed and and how does that like what are some of the things that you like to do with that like how do you like funny i I make that note all the time when i'm working with authors because i think um i always say the specific is the universal and the example I usually give for that is a book called or a movie called Aquila and the Bee, which was, I don't know how long ago, maybe 15 years, maybe more. And it's about a little girl and a spelling bee. And it is riveting. But it's this little bitty, it's this little tiny subject that's just important to her. But the more she cares about this specific thing, the clearer it is, the more vivid it is the more we can care about that. And then we extrapolate that to whatever that thing that we care about so much is. So it's not that we share the experience. I think sometimes authors will try to write, I don't want to say generically, but maybe generalized for whatever reason, because they're filling in the details in their head maybe, or because they think, oh, if I make this too specific, people can't relate to it. But the weird little I guess dichotomy is that the more specific you get, the more universally relatable your work is. So if I, um, I was just talking about this with a writer's group. If, if I'm talking about someone who had like, um, I don't know, let's say they had a, a tough childhood and their father walked out on them. That is a fact. And we, all, we will extrapolate whatever that means to us, but it's a bit vague, right? We don't, that could look like thousands of different things. But then if I tell you something like the character, um, I don't know, he takes flying lessons because he remembers building model airplanes with his dad. That's a little bit more specific. And now I'm starting to get a little bit clearer picture of why this was difficult for him. Maybe I'm um, assuming that he was close with his dad and that he lost that thing that mattered to him. And how do I know that? Because now he's taking flying lessons. So I can clearly see that this is a tie. And then maybe I get even more specific to create a picture in the reader's mind. And I talk about, I don't know planes. So let's say he's building, you know, a Piper Pawnee, you know, that's made out of popsicle sticks that he and his, he remembers sitting up way too late at night with his dad and listening to his mom call for the fifth time, you're late for dinner. And she'd get frustrated and his dad would wink at him. Now I have this really clear picture in my mind of what their relationship was and why it was important to him. And maybe that is entirely foreign to my experience, which it is. But now I can take that incredibly specific feeling that he's having. I can take that specific experience that he had and I will extrapolate that to something in my own life that is meaningful in the same way. So much more so than just saying, hey, you know, I had an unhappy childhood and my dad walked out on me. And that applies with everything. That applies with your sense, you know, the sensory stuff that you put in. It applies with, um, 
one of the way, one of the big ways it applies is authors will say, I'll, I'll say, you know, what is your character's goal? Oh, they want, they want to find love. That's a really vague, amorphous goal. It's A, not something we know how to root for, because what does that look like? And B, it doesn't convey anything granular about that character that we really can sink our teeth into. But if you tell me that she dreamed of, I mean, let's be a cliche, a white picket fence and 2.5 children and a dog named Fido, and that was fulfillment. Now I know what love looks like to her, but let's get even more specific. What does that actually mean to her? So she's probably not going to get that, right? If this is a good story, we're not going to see her get exactly what she thinks she wants. So what is it she actually wants? Maybe it's stability and security. Why does she want that thing? Maybe she grew up in a household where, you know, they were always moving or her dad was never home. And so it made her feel unimportant and she never wants to feel that way again. And she never wants a child to feel that way. And she wants to recreate the family she wished she had or whatever it is. Now we're getting so specific that not only does the character come more to life, but as a reader, I have a much clearer picture of that person. And now I can relate to them on a very personal and specific level that will be more relevant to my life because their journey is so specific, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. And something that I'm in a, I'm taking a short story class right now is something our tutor also says all the time. Uh, and, and I think it's a really good point. And so it's something that she's sort of pushing in one of my, in some of the things that were my story and other people's stories. Like, yeah, this is fine. Like, but can't you make that more specific? Is it blue or is it something more, you know, more specific than that in terms of description? But I think, so currently in like fashionable literary fiction, right? There's a big trend of auto fiction where people are basically writing about their own lives. And that's pretty easy to do in terms of specificity, right? Um, and your main character looks like you and talks like you and lives in your thing. And it's still fiction on some level. Um, but, you know, it's basically auto fiction. I'm concerned that, not concerned, but and that's fine. Like those books, I also read a lot of auto fiction, but a lot of times I'm really missing story. Um, when when you start talking about autofiction, so it's basically a kind of autobiography that has a little bit of a plot. I'm thinking about books I've read recently, which I won't mention here. Um, but I just wonder, like, if you don't, like, I love books that have story, right? I mean, there's a lot of other books that are coming out that have really inventive stories that engage with history or engage with our contemporary life in different ways. But how do you get that level of specificity? Like, how do you help writers that you work with get to story that is not autofiction, right? That is not just themselves. When you say story, will you tell me exactly how you mean that in this context? Like, like people like how do you around. differentiate that from this sort of autofiction that you're talking about like so it's not just myself in a world that i live in already doing things i do every day but okay. like slightly fictionalized right or whatever so do you but, mean go ahead yeah no go ahead do you mean like story as in a fictional thing that happens or do you mean story as in like a journey that the character goes on Probably more like a journey. I'm thinking, I mean, okay. some people that I think do story really well are people like 
um, Sarah Perry, right? But there are other, I mean, there are, she's less, um, she wrote the Essex Serpent and she has like less maybe realistic stories on some level. They're sort of slightly more fanciful. But then other books that I've read recently, like, what there's else? a change, right? I mean, there's a thing yeah. that has change, been yeah. discussed, like um, it's like multiple characters that you get to actually yeah. see. Well, yeah. and there have been essays uh, recently about how like your life does not have a narrative arc. Like we all want to put a narrative arc on our lives, but our lives don't have they don't have a narrative. Yeah, that's arc. why we, we love just, fiction because we desperately yeah. want that. Yeah. Right, <laughs> and you you lose that arc in autofiction. Um, mm-hmm. Like Olivia's saying, it's just somebody like. I mean, it might be sort of a subtle, slight thing. And then at the end, I was in this park instead of on that park bench, right. you know. Um, one of the things, Ruth, so Ruth Ozeki, um, she, I was watching this talk that she gave about, Olivia's <laughs> laughing because I'm obsessed with her. Um, this talk <laughs> that she gave about, um, well, it was about like the eye in in fiction, um, but she was specifically using as an example her novel, because all of her work, her documentaries and her novels have kind of herself, but not herself, or people mm. that someone assumes is her because she's also half Japanese, but is not anything like her kind of thing. Um, but in her novel, A Tale for the Time Being, the, so the, there's a, um, there's a, a writer character who finds on the beach this Hello Kitty lunchbox with a Japanese schoolgirl's diary and some le- old letters in Japanese and a pocket watch and all this stuff. And she said the whole time she had the girl write, like she would write the excerpts from the diary, but she never had the reader, the person who found the diary. She couldn't get that character right. Mm. And she went more and more and more and more generic until finally mm. she had this and this is her third novel and she had made two films before this i mean she's not inexperienced by any stretch um and she had (laughs) she had this character who didn't have a name didn't have a gender had some sort of amorphous unspecified like disability that kept them you know wherever and just kind of existed in this sort of gray fog cloud of reading the thing and her husband was just finally just like you have to make this reader person, you. Mm. It was like, why would I put myself in there? But she did. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's not 100%, you know, but the person who finds it is named Ruth. She has a husband named Oliver. She has this dog, this cat. She's like working on this project that never has come, you know, been complete and she's frustrated. And so there is this very specific element and it is auto fiction, but it also has it has an arc like at the end Ruth is different because she has mm-hmm. interacted with this this diary right and so she has and, and in interacting with this diary she has also interacted with different people who live in her very small village um trying to find someone to translate some French and trying to find someone to you know who knows about um barnacles and stuff to figure out how old this you know how long this thing has been in the ocean and you know that kind of thing and so it's sort of, right right these, <laughs> but so it it there's there is gro- like she has growth right even though it's right well uh, that's sort of the key i think right i mean you keep putting your finger right on it to me that <clears throat> i don't i don't think autofiction as you're describing it which i'm not actually familiar with when you first said that i thought it was fiction about cars. <laughs> so um, 
I don't, to me, it doesn't sound like that's mutually exclusive from story necessarily. Um, even if it's about you, the thing or whatever, a fictionalized version of you, story is what you said, Megan, it's a change. It's a character who starts at a point A and goes through some experience in the passionate pursuit of some desire and is changed in some way by it. Because if they're not changed, what are we reading for? In my opinion, right? Like it's like getting on a plane in your hometown and going on a flight and then getting off and you're in the exact same town. When you got to take it somewhere. Which people are so, doing apparently. Yeah, apparently that happens. Um, <laughs> oh my God, I saw those stories. That is <laughs> the most, the, that's to me like the saddest statement on how incredibly bored and isolated we all are. We're willing to get on a plane right back to where we started from. Yeah. So maybe that will change fiction. Who knows? But to me, that's why we read. And you guys talked earlier about quieter stories. I, like I just finished Dear Edward by Anne Napolitano which is an amazing character study, beautifully written. It has a very, I don't want to say small character arc because there are profound changes in the character, really. But it's a very quiet, slow story where, and I'm going to do my little patented air quotes here, you might say nothing happens because we're just watching a boy recover from uh, an incredible tragedy. And here, and if I, and also going back in time and glimpsing that one day, um, so it's not like there's this big high stakes, plot driven, action oriented story, but we do see the arc of this boy as he is um, going through some stuff. It's a much quieter story than something like Gone Girl, or um, I mean, you know, name your current thing on top of the New York Times bestseller list. But also, this is a subjective craft and art. And so there are people who want those quieter stories. And there are people who want other kinds of stories. And sometimes you want one and sometimes you want another. I'm as inclined to read that as I am to read, you know, some kind of pulpy genre thing that's and I'm not denigrating that at all. I absolutely love genre fiction. It's my favorite, actually. But I'm, but I like all those things. It just depends on my mood. It depends on what I want. I, I want to have an experience, though. And to your point, Megan, I think that the way we do that is by showing a character go through something and be changed by it. That's what story is. So as long as you're putting that in there, then I, I, again, I'm not really familiar with autofiction, but it sounds to me like that's valid as long as you're giving us an experience and aren't all of our characters us to some degree? You know, we're drawing on what we know. And to me, that doesn't mean right about, you know, in my case, being a woman of a certain age living in Austin, Texas. It means write about what you know as a human being. Write about the, and this is, goes back to the specificity thing we were talking about, write about the specific experiences you have had that allow me as a fellow human being to connect with you on the level of, of that shared type of experience, even if it's different in its particulars. I mean, that's, we have so much more in common as humans than we don't, right? So talk about those things that are universal because they are specific. Yeah, I think um, on autofiction, just very briefly, there's like a tiny corner of the, but fashionable, very fashionable corner of the literary fiction world where like Knausgaard or Rachel Cusk or somebody else, they're really writing like, 
there's really very little what I would call story. It's basically like a person in a situation. You're really deep inside their mind or in their world, but you're not like... It almost sounds like an expanded short story. Is that accurate? Kind of, yeah. Like really not very much happens, right, uh, in these books, but you're very deep in their kind of internal monologue. And often, like Knausgaard famously, (laughs) these are like thousands of pages long. Um, Anyway. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I've read, I, like I actually, the writing is excellent and I've read a lot of it. I got stuck on the last one of Knausgaard, but um, anyway, that's a separate thing. It's just interesting because I think it is like one of the reasons that it's maybe fashionable is because there is a sort of like emphasis on people telling stories that are like so, so, so specific, which I agree with, but I also think that stories still matter. Like I want to hear, I want an experience, as you said. I do too. And I I really like, uh, like I'm not a huge reader of really high literary fiction because I love character studies. I love beautiful language, but I also really want something to happen. And I, and it doesn't have to be, you know, car chases and shoot 'em ups, but I want, I want to see a character moving along a path forward toward a different point. That yeah. to me is what I like about story. That's how I edit. And again, you know, if that's not the story you're writing, then you would look for an editor or readers who are wanting what you're writing. But for me, that's what story is. Story is that that point A, the journey that takes me to the point B. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. Um, I think another question I have that's related to all of this is how you, and you've talked about the importance of, um, I guess all three of us are, white or presenting as white uh, in our world. So the importance of reading more diversely than, you know, a lot of the lists and things like that. So you've written on a a post on your website, which we'll link to about the importance of that and just like giving yourself a wider range of stories. But I'm also wondering, because I think your recent book um, is about also transgender main, has a transgender main character. And so I want to talk about how you get the specifics right in a story where you're also not necessarily, um, again, writing about yourself, right? I mean, you have to put right. some some part of yourself into any character that you write. I think for it to be authentic. But how do you get how do you get that right? And what is our kind of responsibility as a writer to do that? Oh, that is such a good and big question, and so topical. <laughs> um, hmm. I don't even know where to start with that. So I'll start with my book, I guess. For me, that came out of several things and I found it in several ways. It came out of the fact that, um, well, first of all, just purely practically, I needed a reason why in the like 50s and 60s, a woman might have been so, and and this is chock full of spoilers, by the way, for anyone who might read this book, it's called A Little Bit of Grace and my pen name is Phoebe Fox and... And I've just spoiled the entire reveal, but um, it's relevant to the conversation. And, and I like the idea of talking about it in that way. So I needed something that was air quotes again, bad enough that a family in a small town in that time might have been unable to cope with it and would have erased this person from their entire family, which is what happened to this character. And and I, the re, one of the reasons I came to having her be a transgender woman is because I have, well, I have a friend who has a, a trans son and I have, um, the biggest reason is sort of tangential. One of my best friends is a gay man. And he told me years ago, and it, it stuck with me really profoundly, 
that when he was growing up, and he's about my age, so, you know, <laughs> middle-aged, we're people of a certain age. Um, he was growing up in a, you know, hard scrabble Italian town where you fought to prove your manhood. Like literally you go out, go get in fights on weekends so you can show your friends what a dude you are. And he knew there was this thing inside of him that was different, but he said he didn't see it anywhere. He didn't see any representation in movies, television, books. And so he didn't know, as he put it, what was wrong with him. And it, it made his journey harder. He didn't come out until his 30s. And this is one of the most self-confident, centered people I know who wasn't able to do that until he was well into adulthood, partly because he never saw that reflected. He never saw his experience reflected back to him. And that really struck me because, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a middle-aged, cisgender, straight, white woman. <laughs> so, the, like, the only... I guess more privileged group than me would be my husband, the white male, <laughs> the middle-aged white male. So that never even occurred to me. Like that was eye-opening to me that you would not see yourself in story. And then I had a, uh, this is the article that you referenced was a conversation that I had. I was doing a presentation for a writer's group and in talking about, um, some issues previous presenters had had with offending some of the members, I had the most eye-opening conversation about things, you know, I've worked in publishing for 30 years and I was unaware of things like books with black people on the cover were often put in the African-American interest section, <laughs> whether they were romance or general fiction or whatever genre. So you, if you're just a casual shopper like me, you know, with my oblivious whiteness, it would never occur to me to go over to that shelf because it's labeled African-American interest. And I would think, oh, okay, clearly that's not for me, which is ridiculous. Um, it didn't even occur to me until they told me that. It didn't occur to me that in the industry I work in, I think I say in the article, there's something like fewer than 5% um, people of color represented in the industry as like editors and agents and that kind of thing. And so if you're not seeing the reflection of you, how do you um, find, I guess, find your way in the world, but also how do we, I feel like I'm scattered with this answer. So let me, let me come back to this one point about this. Um, there's studies that talk about the fact that the, one of the reasons they think cities are more like, I, air quotes, liberal, is because you're living among people who are not like you necessarily, who don't look like you, who may not believe like you, who whatever, they may not love who you love. And that becomes normal. It's not an other. But if you're living in an area where you are not surrounded by that, it is an other. And then it's something that you maybe are not familiar with and you maybe fear or you don't understand or even demonize, God forbid. So there's a reason that when Ellen came out on television or Will and Grace became one of the top TV shows, there's a reason that changed people's views on gay marriage and that now it's legal because it becomes not the other anymore. It's in our living rooms now. So I do think that as authors, it's important to reflect in our stories, the worlds we live in. And the hard part with that right now <laughs> 
know, that a lot of authors I think are struggling with is we don't want, you don't want to appropriate another culture or another experience. And you don't want to, God forbid, make a horrible mistake that gets you canceled. And so we're all paralyzed with fear and told to stay in our lane. And so I'm a, my fear is that that's going to result in a whole bunch more homogenized writing. And I think it's great that hopefully we're going to give voice to people who are underrepresented, who need to have voice. But I also think that all people writing any kind of story, I hope that we have, um, I don't know. I want to write the world that I live in. And so when I, back to circling back to the transgender character, I knew I wanted to do that in a way that was representative, but also I'm appropriating in that case, right? That's not my experience. So I wanted to do it in a way that was knowledgeable, respectful, um, honored the experience and was as accurate as I could. So I contacted a local organization for trans people and they put me in touch with a woman who had a really similar story to the one I was trying to write. And she was unbelievably generous and talked to me and did, you know, would read my early drafts and then read the final draft. And then we had further sensitivity reads at my publisher to make sure that I wasn't misrepresenting anything or inadvertently being ignorant or offensive. And that is a little nerve wracking, I guess, because like in conversations like this, I'm talking about an experience that's not my own. But at the same time, I've gotten a lot of feedback from readers who said it never, like me, you know, it never occurred to me to even think about that or question that until somebody put it in front of me. And now I and now that's something that I'm considering in my reality. So I don't know. The, I mean, the, the short answer is, I don't know. I don't know. We have to do the best we can. I don't live in a world full of homogenous white people who are straight. So I want to try to reflect the world I live in and the things I write. And I have to do that in the best way I know how to do that. And I think all of us do. And then I also think it's incumbent on us on as <laughs> end users um, I, I started changing how I operate as an editor and as a reader after this, after some of these conversations. So um, I changed like I'm book bub. This is the silliest little thing. You tell it what your interests are. Well, it never would have occurred to me, as I said, to put African-American interest on there because it's called something that feels like it's meant not to be my interest. It says right there in the name. So I changed it. And now I'm getting these recommendations for fantastic um, stuff like Beloved comes up there, right? Which is the most universal story you can imagine. And it's slotted in African-American interest and never would have crossed my desktop if I hadn't changed my preferences. Um, when I do presentations now, I realize that by default, and you know, I'm embarrassed to admit this, I had really white presentations, really white straight presentations, because that's what my frame of reference was. And now I make a conscious effort to read more widely and thus to include examples when I'm, um, you know, I, a lot of times I'll present concepts and then I'll bring in excerpts from other stories or I'll illustrate it with a plot from another book. And I'm making much more concerted effort to do that in a broader way that's more representative of the world we live in than this little narrow section of my pie that I, I just kind of fell into by default. You know, I was raised in the South. And that, and that's a uh, where when I grew up in the place I grew up, that was a homogenous place where you stayed in your lane. And so I have to learn 
I have to be open. And I think that's what we kind of all have to do. And we have to take the risk of, you know, it's nobody's job to educate us, but we also have to take the risk of educating ourselves, And that might mean admitting that we are ignorant in ways that might mean saying stupid things and then learning better and doing better. It might mean asking questions. You know, the nice thing about this conversation with the authors I was referencing is that for an hour and a half, we sat around a table and everybody felt free to ask open questions that sometimes I think we're afraid to ask. I don't know. That's a really long answer to your question. Did I even circle in close to it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think there are. I've been thinking answers. so much about this. You what? I don't think there are answers yet. You know, no. I mean, it's a complicated situation. You know, it's a complex thing. How do you be human, basically? How do you be human? And, and how, how do you, you be put inclusive? Humans on the page. Not- yeah. So when you're working with your clients, um, one of the things that comes up a lot in the conversations around publishing is when somebody when a, somebody submits a story that is not white and not homogenous and not straight or not, you know, the publishing default, um, getting comments like, oh, it's great, but I couldn't identify with it, so pass. Or, oh, this isn't the story for me because, and, 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 and whether it's conscious or not on the part of the agents or editors who are passing on it, um, a lot of that, the root of it is, it's not their specific white experience. And so therefore they don't understand it and they're not, you know, they think, Oh, African American interest means it's not for me basically. Um, or they hear, and I, I saw this on like young adult book Twitter and I can't remember, I think it was, I don't remember who was talking about it, but anyway, an author was saying like when she was trying to submit a kind of African folklore inspired fantasy novel, um, she was told, well, we already have children of blood and bone by Tommy Adeyemi. And so we have our one African inspired fantasy for the year and we don't need another one because representation, like we've got it now. So bye, regardless of like, how popular and successful and clearly there's a market for those books. Um, And I think things are changing a little bit, but I guess in your role as an editor, um, how do you work with authors to help them overcome that hurdle? Um, You know, and, and, and I know when we talk about writing, you, you're not supposed to write with, you know, potential critics in mind and like imagine the pitchfork mob coming after you, but it's hard to put that aside. Um, and oh, it is right now. Yeah. And when you're it's revising ever because it's a volatile time. Yeah. Right. And maybe not while you're drafting, but maybe in your revision, you say this great thing, um, you know, write like a dog and edit like a cat. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I, I love that. So maybe when you're like the dog, you do whatever, but when you're in cat mode, um, you do have to kind of start thinking about this. And what do you, what are some of the things that you have started doing to maybe help people push their stories in places that normally would have been closed to it by writing the, the story? So I have, I had two, I have two personal anecdotes about this with authors that I know or work with. One is, um, and I, it's a work in progress, so I'm not going to name the author or talk specifically about the story, but one of the authors I've worked with called me because she's writing a story. I have to be, I have to be amorphous about, I have to be, not be specific <laughs> right now about what it is because uh, I don't want to 
I don't want to step yeah, on yeah. any toes. But so she's writing a story where there's a character who finds out that she has an element in her history, a cultural element she wasn't aware that she had. And so she goes to explore this part of her family that she just found out about. And her agent was really concerned about appropriation and told her to kind of steer clear of that. And so she called to just sort of talk that over because sort of what we were just talking about, like, okay, what do I do with this? This is an experience that I haven't had. However, it's relevant to the story. She is not completely blind to it. She said that she, one of her close friends had this similar experience and is sharing a lot of that with her. So she's getting some, and this is what we do as writers, right? We write, we take the things that we see and know, and we um, extrapolate whatever that we process that we're little data processors and it goes through us. And so that's what she's doing. And we put it on the page and she was really struggling with whether she should, her agent has perhaps viable concerns right now that that might make this a harder book to sell because people are, um, and this is a good thing, being more, trying to be more representative, trying to be more aware, trying to be more sensitive. I think all that's really, really good, but it can also result in stuff like only write the characters who look exactly like you. And that's not what she wants to do for reasons that are directly valid and pertinent to the story that she's telling. And so what she, after talking it out, what she came to was she's going to go ahead and do that because it matters to the story she's telling because she's trying to do it knowledgeably and respectfully. But I don't know how, what that's going to look like with her agent or, you know, with shopping it around because the market is what it is right now. So I guess, again, I guess I don't really know the answer to this. You know, this is a, a weird thing to weigh in on when I'm not a marginalized group, except for being a woman. <laughs> um, so the best of my feeling about it is that I think authors have a calling to represent the world as they see it, the world as it is, and also the world as we would like it to be. And that was one of the things that guided me with my book was I wanted to write a world where a woman like my transgender character could live openly in a community who knew who she was and loved her for who she is as a person. And it was a non-issue, you know, whatever her gender orientation or sexuality or whatever your color is, I want to live in a world where that's a non-issue. So that's the one I wrote in the world of the story after this woman breaks free of a society that doesn't let her be who she is. She goes and makes herself a life where she can be who she is. And so is that the right thing for us to do? I don't know. I encourage writers to follow their heart is the short answer. <laughs> if, if you really feel a compulsion to do this and a calling to do this, and this is the character that feels right for the story you're telling and you're doing it in a respectful way, I, I feel like that's art. But, you know, again, I'm going to, my caveat for that is what the hell do I know? <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to, this is a really fraught time and we have a lot of damage to try to undo as a as an industry as a people <laughs> and i think all we can do is the best we can do and be open and understand that a lot of the reason i think we get to this point of paralysis is shame 
because you know, it's, it's embarrassing to admit that I worked in an industry for 30 years and considered myself an anti-racist person and I was oblivious to this stuff until it was pointed out to me. That's embarrassing to admit. It's, I think we have to be able to lean into that and say, okay, I'm an idiot, help me. <laughs> or, do, you know, not help me, it's nobody's job to do that. But, but let me figure out what I need to do better and let me... If, if I may, you know, if, if I can ask the questions, it's nobody's obligation to answer them, but it, if I can ask the questions, that's how I'm going to learn better so I can do better. And that's all I can do is try to do better. That's all any of us can do is try to be sensitive and open and inclusive and do better. Yeah. And change something. I think when you're, you know, like have conversations and change as a result of them as well. Yeah. 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 Put it like I, I, I tried to take the things I learned and put them into practice and do things differently. Like I read much more widely now. And like I said, I put these things in my presentations. So do better, you know, like learn these things and then put them into practice to your point, Megan, about, um, you know, we have our one inclusive book. If we create a market for that, you know, and I think we are right now. I mean, the, the readership sure. for diverse books has really, it seems to me like it's going upward and that's wonderful. And the more we create a market for that, the more hopefully we make it impossible for publishers to say we have our one representative book. Yeah. No. And I think, I mean, like it's difficult to have these conversations and you, we, I feel not very qualified because I'm also, right. you know, you know, yeah. but I actually think it's really important that we have these conversations in a white only space, right? Like if you're only having a diversity conversation with somebody who's not white, that's also wrong, you know? Right. Right. Uh, yeah. And and I think we've got to look at the stuff you know, the stupid little stuff that we're not even aware of sometimes, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 Well, and like, this is a way you can kind of create a narrative arc with your own life, you know, make sure there's change, um, but, but there's also no, there's no, the end, you know, you don't arrive and yeah. it's like, yeah. okay, well, I'm doing all these things now. So I am done. Um, yeah. yeah. It's but, not a checklist of things you can do right. So your PC it's, right. it's how do we have a more inclusive human experience where we realize, like I said, we're all so much more alike than we are different and that, we don't have to otherize each other. And, you know, I think everything, all social movements to me start with art. I was joking, not even joking, but like the, I do not think it's an accident that gay marriage is legal after yeah. we started seeing mainstream media that was including, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. I think as soon as we bring those, as soon as artists bring those things into people's consciousness, we change how we think. Well, and I think with your point uh, that we've been talking about this whole time about the specific is, you know, what it, what it comes down to is people realize, oh, this person who's nothing like me is just like me. Yeah. Like at the yeah. end of the day. And, and, yeah. Um, yeah. At the, at the core universal levels. I mean, all of our experiences may be profoundly different, but to me, yeah. that's also a huge part of the joy you know, I love reading about other experiences that are not mine because I'm living mine. <laughs> it's pretty boring. It's quotidian for me. Yeah. But if I'm reading, I mean, isn't that why we read and watch movies? We want to have experiences outside of our own. Mm -hmm. Well, and maybe one of the reasons, one of the things that makes it hard to identify sometimes is when um, a character 
from a different culture is not specific enough. And so they become kind of an archetype mm. rather than a human being. Um, I'm instead going to give you a very detailed, nuanced, specific person for you to meet and become friends with as you read the book. And I think there's a difference there. Um, yeah, you know. create characters, not, um, I don't want to say stereotypes necessarily, but create characters, not archetypes, I guess, as you said. Right, right. And we're all we're all more alike than we are different, but we're all also really profoundly different in many ways and nuanced and layered. You know who does that, who did that really well recently? I was reading um, Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half. Yes, I've been yeah. thinking about that book this whole conversation. Yeah, same. <laughs> oh, I love that book. And, yeah. it, and she's got a trans character in there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not, what I loved about it is it's not a focus of the story, this character's being trans. It's, um, it's almost... I don't want to say incidental. It's part of who this character is in a very intrinsic, germane way, but it's also not presented as a thing. You know, it's like you with a capital I. Yeah, this is is another life experience. Yeah, Yeah, it's not the conflict that drives the plot, right? Like I think that's often a mistake. It's like, oh, the fact that this person is this way, that's like the whole conflict. Like that explains the conflict. I'm done with conflict in this story, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like a lot of times that's not the case, right? And I think the more we do that, that's what I mean about sort of seeing representation in art and in fiction. The more we do that, the more that just becomes part of the regular fabric of life. That's that's who's out there. You know, the world is made up of a wide variety variety of experiences and let's put them all in our art so that we so that we don't make the mistake of you know that we've made for years and years and years as as a people I guess which is this is the way this is the this is the paradigm and the frame of reference it's not which I think we're starting to finally realize this is one little piece of the pie of an enormous frame of reference yeah yeah well, and like as readers and editors and agents and, you know, people who are acquiring stories in one way or another, um, to not look for a story to speak for everyone and a story to tell you everything you need to know about X, but it is just a story about a person. And it's going to change as we change. Like the, another thing, I think people are very afraid to be specific because, well, partly because of cancel culture, partly because, you know, you can write something, you know, watch a movie from 20 years ago, read a book from 40 years ago, and you will be appalled. And it, and hopefully it isn't that we were intentionally worse than, it's just when you know better, you do better. And so we were reflecting this tiny chunk of pie you know, where it was okay in a movie to have a guy slap a woman on the butt and, you know, that's flirting. (laughs) And now we're like, I beg your pardon. But it was a part of the process that got us here. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And I think like we're all adults, so we can also know that something is wrong or not the best that could have been done in infinite terms. Right. But maybe was the situation, you know, like, that was also a factor of the time. Like we can't deny also the bad things that were existing previously. Yeah. Just learn better and do better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I'm conscious of time. This is my trademark, uh, <laughs> <laughs> trademark phrase. I think yeah. I picked it up in the UK. Um, but yeah, like we do, I really enjoyed reading your book. And so thank yeah. you very much for coming on the, sh- the show and having this discussion, pretty wide ranging discussion as well. 
Yeah, this yeah. got really wide ranging. I really enjoyed it. It's, these are scary things to talk about. Like they I was are. terrified half the time I'm speaking, but I, I love that the conversations are being had and that you guys are encouraging that on the show. Yeah, I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for being willing to uh, talk about it. And, you know, thanks. Like you said be, be open and honest and, you know, rather than out of shame or embarrassment, like lock everything up and not ever share. So. That's good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Marginally, you might also enjoy one of our favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. Every episode is full of great information and encouragement. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts or find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Like I changed the clothes under the sweatshirt, but pretty much if I'm at home, I'm wearing the sweatshirt. <laughs> I told my husband today, I was like, I wear the sweatshirt every day in every Zoom call. Um, anyway. Okay. Well, you know, he's like, you should change that. Um, That's funny. My husband like, put on jeans the other day and he's like, hey, hard pants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>